Let's pray as we stand. Heavenly Father, there was a time when Paul was in prison and uh, released after they were singing the praises of God. And we pray that as we find Paul again in prison uh, this evening and read of his writings, we may find our hearts not loaded down with the thought of what he endured, but inspired to recognize the great God he served and determined to live for him in our turn so that we may say, Great is God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Do please sit. And do please find um, 2 Timothy, page 1196. A message towards the beginning of term came to us from a student who'd left Holy Trinity to go off to university. And the message from this committed Christian student ran something like this. What am I supposed to do here at uni? I've been told, and I believe, that the gospel is for sharing. Well, the obvious people to share it with are the people that I'm a fresher alongside, but I'd never get to meet any of them because they don't even go out till midnight and they don't get back till after two and by the time they get back, believe me, they're in no condition to listen to the gospel. What am I supposed to do? This is just not the life that easily leads me to help people into any kind of transition. I just don't fit. What am I supposed to do? And I wonder how often you have had that sense that you're in some kind of Christian environment and you don't fit. Well, in many ways, this uh, reading this evening is good news for you because it's about not fitting. If you look at the beginning of verse 10 of chapter 3, Paul begins, You, however... At the beginning of verse 14, he says, but as for you. And uh, just to please Philip, uh, I'll quote you some Greek. In both cases, it's the uh, same exact phrase that's used, sude. And it just means you, on the other hand. And you could preach a sermon just on those two, that, the, the occurrences of that expression. You, on the other hand. You are to be, on the other hand. The person who wrote that, um, are we singing again? Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, the person who wrote that message, over time, no doubt, will get to know the other people around. And there will be an opportunity to uh, get to know them, to share their lives, and out of that, to earn the right uh, to speak of Jesus. But it is true that often we don't feel we've got that because our lives just don't connect. We stand out. There are good reasons for standing out and there are bad reasons for standing out. But tonight, we're very concerned with standing out for the right reasons. 
And this theme comes through uh, uh, twice. You, on the other hand. And the first time, uh, Paul is concerned to say to his friend Timothy, you, on the other hand, have a past that is different. I don't know if you were here last week when the, the previous verses were covered and uh, I, I wasn't here. It was a good week for me to be away, I've decided, because it was, it was full of um, disobedience, ungratefulness, unholiness, and unforgivingness. It was probably a good week to be away. But on the other hand from all of that, you, Timothy, are going to be different. You've got a different past. Then from verse 14 onwards, uh, you, on the other hand, Timothy, uh, you need to know how to be different now and for the future. We stand in a different current. If I heard Fiona rightly when she was offering that uh, book review, those words from Isabel Kuhn were that it was easy to drift, to be part of a herd that drifts with the strongest current. And I wonder where the herd around you are drifting to. I wonder you could kind of probably spend a moment or two, perhaps in your quiet time this week, saying, the people I know and care about, what's actually happening to them? Where are they drifting to? What's going on in their lives? Where is the current of their life taking them? It's not hard, is it, to see the world around us and to see that passion for more and more and more. And we stand in a, a countercurrent to that. But particularly, when we come to this passage tonight, it's not so much against the world, it's against the rest of the church, or against the rest of the proclaimers of some kind of message that isn't actually the truth. We stand against the world, and according to Paul, we stand against error. And what would that error be? Well, we'll learn a little more as we go through. You, on the other hand, are not to be like that, Timothy, because you know all about, verse 10, my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. Lists are very difficult. Uh, there was a piece this morning, I, was ha- I happened to be up on uh, duty preaching this morning, and, and I registered going into it, there are, our eyes tend to glaze over when we find Old Testament quotations. I suspect they do the same when we get to lists as well. What is it that Timothy has known from Paul? Just in case you've not been with us, let me say again. Uh, Paul is in prison. These are, this is the last writing we have from his hand. He's writing to his friend and... and uh, young fellow worker, Timothy, whom he's left in Ephesus. And Timothy is having a really, really tough time of it for various reasons. So the, the old wise hand, the apostle in prison, is writing to Timothy. Timothy is at liberty, but I suspect sometimes he'd probably rather have been in prison with Paul. Such is the nature of the difficulty that he's experiencing as the church just throws everything it's got against him because they are a waste of space in Ephesus at this point. But, says Paul, you know about my teaching, so you've got that going for you. You know about my way of life. The way I lived actually supported what I was saying. There was a, a coherence about what I said and the way that I lived. 
you know, about my purpose. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't purpose to aim. I didn't purpose to end up in jail. It just happens to be where I am. But my purpose, whatever happened, whether I flourished or was put in jail, was always to preach Jesus Christ. You know about my faith, my love, my endurance. Well, you endure in the face of uh, a recognition of what's coming towards you. So even though Paul knew he would die, he also knew he could endure it because of what was going to happen the other side of death. He had hope. And so faith, love, and hope are there in this list. Combined with this sense of the other side of endurance, the grit, gritty, stickable, simply get on with itness of patience. And there were sufferings and persecutions to endure as well. What a different kind of life this is from the false teachers. Let's just go back to them, especially perhaps if you weren't here last week. Who are they? According to verse 4 of chapter 3, they are lovers of pleasure. What does Paul get? Persecution. Well, who are you going to follow? You're surely going to be tempted to follow the person who promises you pleasure rather than the person who promises you persecution. Would my son please stop laughing at the fact that my voice just went like that? Because I've been preaching hard today. Thank you. You're not going to go for the person who promises you persecution. And then those persecutions, just notice where they happened. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? Actually, those persecutions date back to a period not only when uh, Paul um, had his life with Timothy, when Paul first encountered Timothy, and uh, Timothy first started to follow in Paul's tracks. They date back before that. So why would Paul say, you know the persecutions I had way, way back in Antioch? Not just the ones you knew about, in Ico- you experienced in Iconium and Lystra. Perhaps it was this. Paul doesn't want to leave himself open to a charge that, well, first of all, it was a happy experience that you had, Paul, but the persecutions came along later, and that's terribly sad, but it was happy for a while. He wants Timothy, on the contrary, to register this. No, no, from the very beginning, you even heard about me. You know that my life has been one of persecution. And you came on board. You followed in my tracks, even when you knew from the beginning it was about persecution. It's been persecution all the way through. Even though the Lord rescued me, according to verse 11, from all of those persecutions. Again, not in the sense that uh, it turned out happily, but only in the sense that I survived. This is Paul facing death in a, a, a stinking, damp Roman jail. And yet, he can say, God rescued me from them all. That's the first you, on the other hand. Look at the past. You've got to know me. 
And you've got to know just the, not only the character I have, but the history of gospel preaching that I've been involved with and what it's done to me, what it's done for me. Remember all of that. But now he comes on to uh, the other uh, uh, you on the other hand. Uh, just to, to finish, he's compared um, the everyone who wants to live a godly life, in verse 12, with evil men and impostors who go from bad to worse. Well, you'd expect him, therefore, to say, but no, Timothy, not for you. You're supposed to go, go from good to better. He doesn't say that. They go from bad to worse. You stay where you are. You, on the other hand, verse 14 now, continue in what you've learned and been convinced of. What's going to happen for Timothy is not a kind of um, total opposite, a, a climbing from good to better. Paul's not concerned with that. I think it was uh, Mark who, preaching on Timothy, uh, to this letter a little earlier, made this point clear, that very often what we're called on to do is simply to stand firm. Not more than that. Not more than that is necessary. We simply have to stand, to continue. Because the present and the future that Paul's now going to cover with this, diff, with this second, uh, you on the other hand, verse 14, they're going to they're be different from what we've just covered. Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. Well, who is this? Who is it that's uh, been involved? Earlier on in the letter, Paul talks about those who brought Timothy up knowing the Holy Scriptures. Lois and Eunice, his mother and grandmother. But the fact that in verse 14 he says, you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, suggests that it's not Lois and Eunice uh, now. Because otherwise he would mean, uh, you, know, uh, you, you know those from whom you learned it, Lois and Eunice, and how from infancy Lois and Eunice taught you the Holy Scriptures. It, it, it may well be more likely that he actually means you've known me and others like me. And what that means is that Paul is beginning to, we're beginning to hear a claim from St. Paul that matters very much. If I stood uh, before you this evening and said, I, I want you to take enormously seriously what I'm about to say. Part of you, of course, would just giggle. Um, but... Uh, if I went on to say, I'm going to ask you to take it enormously seriously because I actually uh, I, I'm an apostle. You'd probably pass from giggling to saying, no, this is, this is rather more serious, and he's completely lost his marbles. Because you know that I'm not an apostle. If, however, your experience of someone, and Timothy's experiences of Paul, 
is of a man who is now writing to you from what amounts to his deathbed, only it's a lot less comfortable than a bed. It's no shame on that man who's claiming to be an apostle if he's actually beginning to say now, I want you to focus on me. He's in no position to say, I want you to notice how cool I am. I want you to notice how wonderful I am. You don't say that when you're stuck in a Roman jail. But if you're approaching the end of your life under persecution for having followed Jesus Christ, you have earned the right to start to claim apostolic authority. And that's what's beginning to happen now for Paul. As for you, continue in what you have learned. You've learned it from me, he said earlier. And have become convinced of, it's been borne out in your experience. Because you know those from whom you learned it. You've known me, just as we covered that in verse 10. And you know that if you got it from me, then you got it from one who had apostolic authority. It's not self-glorifying if you're on your deathbed when you say it. You've known that, and you have also known the Holy Scriptures which carry authority in themselves. Therefore, in those couple of verses, 14 and 15, it may well be that what Paul is meaning is, I want to collide now these two sources of authority. You can continue, Timothy, because you've known and learned everything that matters. You've had me in my apostolic authority, and you've had Scripture in Scripture's authority. Those two in combination cannot be beaten. Well, I want to take us now to consider what you probably know to be the famous bit. One of the great 316s of Scripture. 2 Timothy 316, but we're going to begin at 15. You know from those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy <clears throat> you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. We'll come to that later. What are the Scriptures for? They're for making you wise, and wise in itself already stands up as a contrast. It's a, a you, how a, you, on the other hand, to those in verse 2. Your scriptures make you wise, but consider the contrast with those who are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited. You're going to be wise. And wise for what? Wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Because it's the kind of thing we expect Paul to say, it's worth just stopping for a moment and saying, well, okay, yes, but what does it mean? The, uh, the answer, I suspect, again, lies in the contrast. Verse uh, 5 of chapter 3. These false teachers, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And what is its power? Well, there are women in verse 6 who Paul says are loaded down with sins. And so, I suggest 
that what Paul means is the false teachers are giving some form of teaching, whatever it is, but it is not powerful to deal with the one thing that the true gospel can deal with, which is sins. The true gospel that he's concerned with makes you wise for salvation, meaning it is the only way of dealing with sin. There is no other gospel that carries that power. There are lots of other messages that can tell you you're fantastic, or that can tell you that you've got troubles and here's a religion that will help. But to have the form of godliness without the power in a context where people are loaded down with sins, tells us that real power in the message that should go forth from Christian teachers is that you and I can be saved from our sins. And by the way, if you don't know that tonight for yourself, then do go and pray with those who will pray with you afterwards. And has it, hasn't it always been like that? We're told these days that spirituality has never been quite as popular as it is now. And what is the form of that spirituality? Well, it's trying to be terribly helpful. I I picked up a Facebook message that horrified me. A former member of this church, admittedly many, many years ago, clearly got into some kind of yogic thing or, or other. And he put up a Facebook status from his guru uh, about some Ericksonian hypnotherapeutic set of seminars that was to be delivered. I've no idea what that was about. But whatever it was about, I can guarantee it didn't deliver you from your sin. And you may be here tonight thinking, well, that's okay, because I don't think I've got a problem with that. Well, good on you. I know I've got a huge problem with it. And it's always been that way. Out there in the world, there will be those who think that humankind are not really that bad. Fine, if you want to choose that path, fine, but don't call it by the name of Jesus Christ. There are those in the churches these days who uh, follow after whatever uh, management speak and sociological trends tell them the people of this world need and want to hear. Fine. If you want to do that, take that track, but don't say it bears the name of Jesus Christ. If it bears the name of Jesus Christ, let it be for this, that it speaks of salvation from sin and therefore has the power of true godliness. You know the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Nothing else then that wisdom from the Scriptures is going to lead to your salvation. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Well, what's, what, does, what is Scripture there? I said earlier, it looks as though Paul is beginning to count himself in with Scripture. And there are times when he comes very close. We know that he wrote letters and expected them to be read publicly, as Scripture would be read. We know that he claims sometimes when he writes to write with the personal authority of Jesus Christ. We know from things he writes that he 
uh, acknowledges his message carries the word of God and that he is using words that are taught by the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, St. Peter, in chapter uh, uh, 4, I think, calls the, uh, Paul's work the other, sorry, calls the Old Testament the other scriptures when talking of Paul. As though Paul's words are now beginning to be treated as scripture. And uh, Paul himself adds Jesus to Deuteronomy in one moment, uh, at one moment. Just go back, if you would, to page uh, 1193. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, it's at the bottom of the page there. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. That's Deuteronomy. And then, the worker deserves his wages. Paul is already beginning to expect then, when he calls that scripture, that that word of Jesus is passing into the category of scripture. He's expecting that there is an extension to the notion of scripture at beginning. And then in these other contexts I've mentioned, he himself finds, seems to be, uh, not in any pushy way, but moving towards an expectation that his words carry authority because they come from God. Now, verse 16 is not a proof. Very important to say that. I know of uh, one person connected to our church who's going through a really hard time in appreciating the value and the where to place, how high, how low to place a doctrine of Scripture. And he says, well, you know, how much weight should we put on that one verse, verse 16? because I guess he's heard lots of people talk about it. But verse 16 isn't claiming to be a proof. You cannot prove that Scripture is God-breathed. What could you appeal to? Whatever it was that you appealed to would have to be higher, as because it's the ground of proof, than what you're seeking to prove. It would have to be higher than Scripture. But if Scripture is God-breathed, then you're not going to get a higher appeal court than Scripture. So we can, must never claim that Scripture prove, is proved here to carry the authority of God. All we can say is that it is asserted. It is claimed. We bring this into our doctrine of Scripture. John Calvin, who wrote books and books about Scripture was wise enough to acknowledge that Scripture is its own proof. It cannot be proved by appeal to anything else, but simply living under Scripture is what demonstrates, as Paul has done in this catalogue of lifestyle, it demonstrates that Scripture is real. So Paul is not concerned to prove the, the how of Scripture's authority, simply to state the that of it, that Scripture comes from God's mind and by God's breath. Most of what he's concerned with is what it's for. It's useful for teaching and rebuking or refuting. We're in the area then of what's taught. We're doing well tonight. We've had Greek. Let's have some Latin. Jonathan Mason used a phrase in a sermon last week that I thought was rather good. Um, he made a distinction between uh, the credenda and, 
depending on how you pronounce your Latin, the agenda or the agenda. The things that are to be believed and the things that are to be done. First two things here, the teaching and refuting, that's about what's to be believed. We use scripture to teach, to say what's right, to say what's wrong. But there's also the business of walking in it, living it, what's to be done, the agenda. Scripture is useful for correcting and training in a righteousness of life. I want to ask you a question. Where does Scripture exercise that function for you? Where do you let Scripture correct you and train you in righteousness? It's a good thing to read Scripture. But where do you let it correct you and train you? If you read it with others, do you use it simply to affirm the kind of things that we all know? Or do you use it to allow yourself to be corrected and trained in a right life? We were um, away last weekend with friends down towards Bath. And um, they told us a story of the church that they go to there, which is not unlike this one. And... uh, of how a friend who'd recently joined that church, um, having experience of others in the city, said how good it is to get to a church that teaches scripture. If that's been your background, please don't take it for granted or assume that that's what every church recognizes as vital. It isn't. Don't treat your heritage uh, lightly. Value it. Against the world's errors and those that are rampant throughout the church, stick with Scripture. And ask yourself, where do you let it do its work? So that the man of God, verse 17, not particularly putting the emphasis on the gender there, you may be glad to know. Possibly it means those with responsibility in any sense for serving in the life of the church, of God's people, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I guarantee that somewhere, if it's not already happened to you, you will go to a church, and they will tell you, and you will go, woohoo, isn't that marvelous? They will tell you about verse 16 of chapter 3, and they will read through to the end of that passage, and they will tell you that Scripture can equip you thoroughly for every good work, in the hope that you will say, yes, I want to go out and be thoroughly equipped for every good work, and good, because that's a good thing to do. But bear in mind this. Bear in mind the choices that are real choices, and they sometimes have to be made moment by moment, that the person who is going out thoroughly equipped for every good work the person in this story that we're involved with tonight, who most of all was going out thoroughly equipped, was about to be killed. Let's pray. Lord God, we don't want to be persecuted. 
We prefer it if people like us. And sometimes we acknowledge that we stand out for the wrong reasons, not for the right ones. And all we can do when we've listened to St. Paul this evening is to hold out our hands to you and say, Lord, my life is for you to determine. I do want to be thoroughly equipped. I want to know everything that will help me to train for a right life, and I want to commit to a life that is led under Scripture. And I want to do the good works that come from that. But we acknowledge, Lord, that that may not lead us to pleasure, but may lead us to persecution. Give us the strength, then, we pray, how we pray it, that when those choices come to choose pleasure rather than a life that knowing your scriptures may lead to persecution, we may choose courageously because we know what we have learned from those who have guided us and we have come to trust your scripture. And in that knowledge, in that trust, no other cause can tempt us. Amen.